0: lesson seven for may 11 to 17 keys to family unity read by dr percy harold sabbath afternoon may 11 before we start let's pray our heavenly father once again we thank you for your word and what it means to us individually as a church and as a community as families we have difficulties sometimes lord but in Your Word, there are guidelines for us which will help. And as we study this week, we pray that Your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us. May Your name be glorified. During this lesson, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 17, and verse 21. And it reads, That they all may be one, as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You. That they also may be one in Us that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's read that again, John seventeen twenty one. that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Family life represents different seasons of life for different people. For the mother and father, the introduction of children in their lives represents a major change, one that will last their lifetimes. And for the offspring, of course, going from non-existence to existence is indeed a major transition. Then too, children go through the various stages of life until they leave home, and indeed might have children of their own. Yet, whether as parents or children in a family, we all struggle with the same thing. And this is our sinful, fallen natures, which can make unity in family life very challenging, to say the least. Yes, in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, all humanity has been reconciled to God and to one another. Ephesians two thirteen to 16 and Colossians one twenty one to 21-23 tell us this. But on a daily practical level, we must appropriate for ourselves the grace of Christ, which alone can make family unity a living experience for all who seek it in faith this must be a daily experience in our lives fortunately through the grace of christ it can be ephesians two verse thirteen to sixteen read but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ the enmity and Colossians one twenty one to twenty three and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Twelve Christ the Center. Question: What illustration does Paul use to describe the new unity that exists between peoples in Christ? How has Christ made one out of two? We'll look at Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven to twenty-two, and Galatians three twenty-eight. First of all, Ephesians two, verse eleven. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh of hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you, who were afar off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore And Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ removes the barriers that separate people from each other. Walls separated worshippers in the Jewish temple, men from women, and Jews from Gentiles. Describing the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, Paul used language that applies equally to other divisions between nations, people groups, social strata and gender to create out of the two a single new humanity in himself, thereby making peace, Ephesians 2.15 from the NEB. Is good news that helps couples to truly know one-flesh unity in marriage. Also, by faith in Christ, long-divided families can be reconciled. Question. It's one thing to quote biblical texts about oneness in Christ. It's wholly another to actually experience it. What practical changes does Christ bring to our lives that enable us to experience the oneness and unity we have been promised? See, for instance romans six four to seven second corinthians five seventeen and ephesians four twenty four to thirty two We start with Romans six and verse four, therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all all things have become new. And Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no one corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed by the day for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, in Christ, forgave you. Ellen White writes in the Adventist Home, page 179, Picture a large circle, from the edge of which are many lines, all running to the centre. The nearer these lines approach the centre, the nearer they are to one another. The closer we come to Christ, the nearer we shall be to one another. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship, page 109, wrote, Between father and son, husband and wife, stands Christ the mediator, whether they are able to recognise him or not. We cannot establish direct contact outside ourselves, except through Him, through His Word, and through our following of Him. And so to finish today, how close is your family, or church family, to the centre of that circle? What else must come down in order for the relationships to be as they ought to be? May 13, Becoming One Through His Love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 reads, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Question, Jesus prayed to his Father that his followers would be one as we are one in John 17 verse 22. Summarize what Jesus was saying here focusing specifically on the role of love needed in order to achieve this oneness. Unity among his followers was on Jesus' mind in this prayer. Experiencing agape love is essential to this unity. Agape is the Bible word for God's love used in this prayer and in many other places in the New Testament. Such love is God's very nature, as we read in 1 John 4.8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And it identifies Jesus' followers in John 13.35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. God's love is not natural to the sinful human heart. It comes into one's life as Jesus dwells with the believer by his spirit, as we read in romans five five New hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, and in Romans. 9. Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. John 15 verse 12 reads, Love each other as I have loved you. The disciple John, who wrote these words, was once not lovable, but proud, power-hungry, critical, and hot-tempered. We read about this in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17. James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Luke 9, verses 54 and 55. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. And we'll also look at a comment in The Desire of Ages, page 295. All the disciples had serious faults when Jesus called them to his service. Even John, who came into closest association with the meek and lowly one, was not himself naturally meek and yielding. He and his brother were called the sons of thunder. While they were with Jesus, any slight shown to him aroused their indignation and combativeness evil temper, revenge, the spirit of criticism were all in the beloved disciple. He was proud and ambitious to be first in the kingdom of God. But day by day, in contrast with his own violent spirit, he beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus and heard his lessons of humility and patience. He opened his heart to the divine influence and became not only a hearer, But a doer of the Saviour's words, self was hid in Christ. He learned to wear the yoke of Christ and to bear His burden. Later in life, he remembered how Jesus had kept on loving him in spite of these traits. Jesus' love gradually changed John, enabling him to love others in Christian unity. He wrote in 1 John 4.19, We love him because he first loved us. He wrote, And if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another in the same chapter, verse 11. So, to finish today, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through to 8. Try placing your name where the word love appears. How well does it fit? Ask Jesus to bring these qualities of love into your life by His Spirit. What changes might the Spirit prompt you to make in order to reach this Christian ideal? First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through to 8 Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Tuesday, May 14, Selfishness, Family Destroyer Ellen White writes in Early Writings, page 119, If pride and selfishness were laid aside, five minutes would remove most difficulties. End of quote. As human beings, our natures have been corrupted by sin, and perhaps the greatest example of that corruption is the curse of selfishness we seem to be born selfish. We can see this reality in small children, whose basic nature is want for themselves. Me, me, me. By the time we reach adulthood, this trait can manifest itself in some pretty terrible ways, especially in the home. Of course, Jesus came to change this, as we read in Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. His word promises us that we, through him, don't have to be dominated by this destructive character trait. His whole life is a perfect example of what it means to live without selfishness, to the degree we emulate His life, as we read in 1 John two six, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We will overcome the tendency to live only for ourselves. Question: Look at the following texts. What do they tell us about living a life of selflessness? Philippians two, verses three to five: Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And 1 John chapter 3, verses 16-18 to 18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. As Ellen White wrote above, If pride and selfishness were put aside, So many problems could be solved very quickly, long before they fester and brew and eventually turn into something nasty. All members of the family, especially the parents, must be purged of this sin at the foot of the cross, as we read in Proverbs 16.6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord one departs from evil even if that means constantly coming back to the cross and kneeling in prayer, faith, tears, and submission. And so to finish today, how much time are you spending at the cross fighting against whatever selfishness appears in your life? How does this verse, Matthew 7.16, help show you if you've been spending enough time there? You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles?" Wednesday, May 15, Submission Question. What counsel does Paul have regarding humility and service in relationships? In Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. How do you think this attitude contributes to unity in the Church? Why is it so important? At home, Ephesians 5.22-6, to verse 9. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word." and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service, as men pleases, but as bondservants of christ doing the will of god from the heart with good will doing service as to the lord and not to men knowing that whatever good any one does he will receive the same from the lord whether he is a slave or free and you masters, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The word submit in Ephesians 5.21 means to place oneself humbly before another person on the basis of voluntary choice. This unique principle began with Christ – as we read in Matthew 20, verses 26 to 28. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, and John 13, verses 4 and 5, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And Philippians 2, 5-8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death.' even the death of the cross. And this unique principle began with Christ and characterises all those who are filled with His Spirit. Reverence for Christ is what motivates people to submit in this way, as it says in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mutuality in self-giving was and still is. A revolutionary Christian teaching about social relationships. It brings to life the spiritual reality that all are one in Christ. There are no exceptions. A household principle. The proving ground of Christian submission is in the home. If this principle is effective there, it will make a dramatic difference in the church. Paul moves immediately from the introduction of the principle of submission to discuss its application in families three pairs of relationships are addressed in ephesians 5:22 to chapter 6 verse 9 that we've just read the most common yet most equal relationships in society the intent is not to reinforce an existing social order but to show how the faith culture of Christ operates when there is a radically different voluntary submission of believers to one another. Question. Why do you think Paul consistently speaks first of those who are socially weaker in the culture, the wives, children and slaves? Write the qualifying phrase attached to the submission of each of these, Ephesians 5, in verse 22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Those with greater social power, husbands, parents, masters are always addressed second. Each receives a directive quite uncommon to the culture. These directives must have astonished the believers of the first century. They levelled the ground around the cross and opened the way for true oneness to be experienced in relationships. Thursday, May 16, Living the Love We Promise Ultimately, family cohesion and unity rest on the commitment of family members, beginning with the commitment of the marital partners to care for one another. Sadly, Bible history is strewn with examples of failed promises, broken trust and lack of commitment where it should have been present. Scripture also has stirring examples of ordinary people who, with God's help, committed themselves to friends and family and kept their promises. Question. Look at the following families and their levels of commitment. How could commitment have been strengthened in some families? What encouraged the commitment shown in the others? First, we've got parent-child commitment, and we go to Genesis chapter 33, verses 12 to 14. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. "'Please let my lord go on ahead before his servant. "'I will lead on slowly at a pace, "'which the livestock that go before me "'and the children are able to endure "'until I come to my lord in Seir.'" And Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, "'And a man of the house of Levi went "'and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. "'So the woman conceived and bore a son.'" and when she saw that he was a beautiful child she hid him three months but when she could no longer hide him she took an ark of bulrushes for him daubed it with asphalt and pitch put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done of him then the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Then there's sibling commitment, Genesis 37, verses 17 to 28. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall say, What will become of his dreams? But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of his hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands, and bring him back to his father.' So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped him of his tunic, the tunic of many colours that was on him, then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judas said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And then family commitment. We first of all read Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 to 18. But Ruth said, "'Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried.' the lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me when she saw that she was determined to go with her she stopped speaking to her and ruth chapter two verses eleven and twelve and twenty 11. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward to be given by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to refuge. And verse 20, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative, however, there is a relative closer than I, Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Marlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore son. And then there's marital commitment, as we read in Hosea chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "'Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord.' So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And in the same chapter, verses 6 and 8, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhumana, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And verse 8, Now, when she had weaned lo she conceived and bore a son. And chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover, and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I... I brought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So, too, will I be toward you. When we commit ourselves to another person, as in marriage or in the decision to bear or adopt a child, There is a willing surrender of our freedom to make a different choice in the future, a surrender of control over an important segment of our lives. Laws may restrain negative behaviour, but marriage and family relationships need love within them to enable them to flourish. So to finish today, what does Jesus' promise of commitment in Hebrews 13.5 mean to you personally? What effect should his commitment to you have on your commitment to him, to your spouse, to your children, and to fellow believers? Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. May 17. There are results of family unity. The first works of Christians is to be united in the family, writes Ellen White in The Adventist Home, page 37. The more closely the members of a family are united in their work in the home, the more uplifting and helpful will be the influence that father and mother and sons and daughters will exert outside the home. End of quote. And then there's the secret of family unity, and this comes from page 179 of the same book. The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. The secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy, not management, not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, though there will be much of this to do but union with christ end of quote and that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week one talk about the forces in your own society that work against family unity what practical solutions can you offer to a family that is struggling against these influences two is there a family in your church right now that has come apart if so, what can you do as a class to help each member in this crisis time? 3. Discuss this whole question of submission. How is it to be understood in a Christian context? In what ways has the principle been abused? And 4. What principles can you see in regard to family unity that can be applied to the idea of unity in the Church as well? side story. Our mission story this week is titled, The Man Shares Sabbath, and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Not many people can tell that they have spoken with an angel. Farmer Notley Tidwell could, but he didn't. Instead, he referred to the mysterious stranger as the man. One evening, in the 1880s, Tidwell prayed as he trudged home, his fiddle in hand, from a barn dance in the U.S. state of Texas. He was confused. He had been raised to worship on Sunday, but he had been studying the Bible and saw that the fourth commandment said, Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, in Exodus 20 and verse 8. As he prayed, a man suddenly appeared beside him. Tidwell knew everyone in the area, and he had never seen this man before. But he wasn't startled. The stranger was very pleasant. "'He just appeared and started talking to him,' said his granddaughter, Lorena Stigold, aged ninety-four. The conversation soon turned to the Sabbath, and Tidwell shared his growing conviction that God had set aside Saturday, not Sunday.' he expressed bewilderment that he couldn't find anyone who observed saturday the stranger said he knew of a group of people who worshipped on saturday and he gave directions to their meeting place tidwell glanced to the side as they spoke and when he looked back the man was gone he was just there and he turned and he was gone said his great-granddaughter reba seaford aged sixty-eight returning home Tidwell told his wife about the unusual meeting and days later decided to follow the man's directions. They led to a farmhouse where a small group of Seventh-day Adventists met every Sabbath. Tidwell was baptised into the Adventist church with his wife and their eight children. He later became a local church leader and planted the first local Adventist church located between the towns of Linden and Marietta in Texas. Although the church is now closed, others have sprung up in the area, including a church in Linden where Stigold attends with other relatives. Tidwell's legacy also lives on. His faithfulness to God spawned several generations of mission-minded Seventh-day Adventists who have served as Bible workers, literature evangelists, and special needs leaders in Texas and beyond. He became the first Adventist in a large family, said Seaford, one of granddaughter Stigold's four children. Tidwell never identified the stranger as an angel, but the family believes that he was sent from heaven in answer to an earnest prayer. He just called him the man, but he believed that God sent him, said Stigold, who heard her grandfather tell the story when she was a girl. I believe. He was an angel, she said. And there's a picture of Stigald and her daughter Reba. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department, and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.